Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Court of the United Kingdom, where today we're beginning the hearing of the appeal in the case of Begum and the Secretary of State for the Home Department. All this week, we've been exploring the story of Shamima Begum. On Monday, the Supreme Court began a hearing to decide whether she should be allowed to come back to Britain to fight for her citizenship. But what's actually happened in court? The appeal uh, by the Secretary of State and uh, cross-appeal... What will the judgment, when it comes, mean for Shamima Begum's future and the future of all British nationals languishing in detention camps in Syria? ...to deprive her of British uh, nationality. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, bring me home. The legal battle over Shamima Begum's future. So ordinarily, we'd like to go to the court. Fiona Hamilton has been keeping a close eye on the Shamima Begum hearing at the Supreme Court. She's the crime and security editor of The Times. And of course, physically going to a court makes it a lot easier because you can ask lawyers how to spell their names and where the documents they produce have come from and other relatively important questions for court reporting. But that's not possible at the moment at the Supreme Court because of the strict lockdown. So they stream the proceedings online. Anyone could log in and watch and listen to what was going on. What is this particular stage of the case about? 
So it's quite a lengthy and complicated case that's been going on for some time, but the Supreme Court has been asked to settle a fairly narrow legal point, which is whether or not she should be allowed back into the UK to fight her appeal against the revoking of her citizenship. The Supreme Court began by hearing from the government's barrister. And he's gone in very strong on the grounds that Ms Begum should not be allowed to return because she presents, in his words, a very serious national security threat. He cited a string of assessments by, in particular, MI5, which said that anybody who travelled to Islamic State and aligned themselves with the caliphate represents a risk. MI5 at any one time is monitoring around 3,000 individuals or has 3,000 individuals on its radar, but there's another 40,000 people who have been on the radar and come off or on the periphery of things. Shamima Begum would be one more person for them to monitor. Sir James told the court that there was no guarantees that could be done and that the public would be put at greater risk as a result. Although this appears to be a hearing over a very narrow legal point, whether Shamima Begum appeals her case from here or from the camp in Syria, the government is very keen to win. The problem, as they see it, is if she comes home, she fights a case to have her citizenship stripping overturned. Even if she loses that case and a court decides that it was right for the government to take a citizenship offer in the first place, it probably will be very difficult for them to remove her. So the crux of this case for the government is incredibly important. What is Shamima Begum's lawyer saying? Well, the government is seeking to overturn a ruling in the Court of Appeal from the summer that Ms Begum cannot get a fair and effective appeal from the detention camp in northeast Syria. So her lawyers were really hammering home that point. They say that the camp is overseen by Kurdish authorities who don't allow detainees to speak to lawyers, let alone have their lawyers visit. They claim that if detainees are discovered speaking on the phone to their lawyers, that they are put in isolation and risk being beaten. They say that communications are incredibly patchy and communications are certainly not secure. And they argue that therefore Ms Begum cannot even participate properly or meaningfully in her own case, that she can't discuss issues of national security and potentially defend herself on those issues because there's no security to the communications They also argue that while it's clear Ms Begum travelled to Syria, she aligned herself with ISIS and she lived in the Islamic State stronghold of Raqqa for the best part of four years, the government hasn't produced any other evidence, such as there's no suggestion that she engaged in any combat herself and there's no other evidence of terrorism against her. They are arguing that the government is asking the court to assume the worst of Ms Begum when she may not present much of a threat at all. When can we expect a result on whether she can come back to fight for her citizenship? This appeal was expedited, so it was brought forward by the court. The judges in closing the hearing said they recognised that there was obviously significant importance attached to the case and there's some urgency, not least given the situation she is in. So they will do their best to bring us a ruling as soon as possible. We may get one before Christmas, we may not. I gave my word to her family back in 2015 that I would try and help get their daughter back. For Mohammed Akunji, 
The legal battle began five years ago. I've been involved with the Shamima Begum case by representing her family since 2015 when events kicked off. He's a solicitor who's worked with the family pro bono since the very beginning, just after Shamima Begum first left London. They were in an absolute state. They, they couldn't understand or believe what had happened. They couldn't understand why their daughters left, let alone gone over to Syria. There was no indication of any radicalisation or conversations like that at home. The whole thing seems to have happened very, very quickly. Children of that age are pretty good at hiding or uh, keeping things away from their parents anyway, but this is nothing that any parent expects. It's been five years. She's been through a lot. She's she's lost three children. She's lived out in in a caliphate and then in a war zone for a number of years. How, how is their relationship now? A relationship requires communication, and that's been very, very sporadic and spartan since Shamima appeared in the camp. And before that, they had no communication for a considerable period of time. Their parents were aware that they were grandparents, but obviously you've never met their grandchildren whilst they were alive. And now they've had three grandchildren who are dead. They have a, a daughter who's in the international media as a pariah and is stuck in a refugee camp where the mortality rates are, are pretty high. I don't think there's a comparator that anyone can look at and think, well, this is how this family are bearing up compared to another set of tragedies in anyone's normal experience. The prospect of bringing the Bethnal Green girls back home wasn't always something the authorities feared. Back in 2015, there was a huge mobilisation in the UK by politicians and also by the Turkish authorities to try and locate the girls and then have them return. We had the head of counterterrorism police at the time, Bernard Hogenhauer, saying that if there was no evidence of them committing any further offences, well, they would be treated as victims of crime rather than as any sort of perpetrators. The families were aware that in 2016 we'd managed to bring another lady back. The UK authorities were alive to our attempts to bring people back and they weren't uh, working against us. So it was something of a surprise when Sajid Javed decided to do an about-face and actively block her from returning. How did her family feel when that happened? Angry and upset. Um, we were then tasked with bringing every legal tool to bear to try and uh, reverse that decision or emoliate that decision. But it very quickly, our focus shifted from the deprivation of Shamima Begum's citizenship to actually the welfare of her child, really, who, who wasn't subject to any citizenship stripping. So we made every effort to try and encourage the Home Secretary to assist us in bringing the, the grandchild back, Shamima's son back, who was obviously an absolute innocent. That was rebuffed and the child then died and that, that was spectacularly upsetting. Well, Shamim Begum, first of all, is dual national. She holds Bangladeshi nationality and therefore she can be stripped of her British nationality without being made stateless. That's the voice of the MP, Tom Tugendhat. He chairs the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and he's put forward proposals for a new Treason Act to deal with people who join terrorist organisations abroad. I wanted to know whether he thought Shamima Begum should be stripped of her citizenship. 
This was done uh, because of her actions in support of terrorism overseas. Now, the challenge is whether or not she should be allowed to come back and stand trial herself and appeal herself in the UK courts. But the reason why the government has denied this, and I completely understand the government's position, is, of course, once she was back, it would make any attempt, uh, any, any action by the government effectively null and void because no court in the country is going to expel her from the UK uh, back to Syria. Obviously, that wouldn't be proper. And the Bangladeshi government, quite understandably, would not accept her. She's officially a dual national, but she's never even been to Bangladesh. And the Bangladeshis point out that she was radicalised in Britain and should be our problem. Is, is that a difficulty? Well, of course, it's a difficulty. And, and uh, you know, the argument that we're responsible for those who radicalise in the UK is one that you're not alone in having raised. I certainly have been pushing for a new treason act in order to capture this level of betrayal that is, let's be honest, pretty unusual, but still is a very severe betrayal of British people of whatever ethnicity, religion or background. We need to prepare ourselves if we're going to uh, allow people like this back into our country. If she did come back... It would be very hard to, to gather enough evidence to be able to put her through a, a legal process. How can we deal with these sort of problems? Well, this is one of the reasons why I'm calling for a new Treason Act, because a Treason Act that allowed very severe sentencing for such crimes would be an extremely important bill to have on the statute book. Now, although it may be used for many other things, the level of sentencing would, of course, be relevant to the crime. So it wouldn't be a sort of an automatic sentence for every offence. But it, I think this would reassert what I think is fundamental here, which is the level of trust that a community should be able to have in other people within it. And here, people like Shamim Begum have very badly betrayed the British people and have let everybody down, most particularly, actually, the, the Muslim community of Great Britain. When you say betrayal, um, I mean, how would you define that? Would it be an act of betrayal if people were online looking up, you know, radicals, you know, things which which would radicalise them? Is, is that an act of betrayal? At what, what point do you sort of cross the line? Well, th that's what we go through the in the paper. And the, and the question is uh, a valid one. And it, it's one that we've really got to debate because uh, in different circumstances, the act is different. But certainly the inspiration to violence against uh, fellow citizens is an act of betrayal. Uh, and I think we should be very clear that we, uh, we reject it as a community and a society. And in the case of Shamima Begum in particular, what would you like to see happen to her now? Well, I'm not going to get into an individual case because it's not something I've looked at in detail. And so I don't think I'm the appropriate person to answer. But I do think that individuals who choose to go and join terrorist organisations to fight against, quite deliberately to fight against the British people and allies and friends, have made a choice for themselves. And I think we need to recognise that. One of the biggest fears for people who don't want British nationals to be brought back home from these camps is that there may not be enough evidence to be able to hold them to account legally. So rather than facing prison, there is a chance that some of these people would end up back in the community. That's one of the reasons that MPs like Tom Tugendhat want a new Treason Act. I put those concerns to Mohammed Akunji, Shamima Begum's family solicitor. The very concept of that makes a mockery of the idea of justice, which is that if we've got no evidence of anyone committing any crimes, the, the principle there is that they're an innocent party who are 
meant to be unmolested and allowed to carry on with their lives quite naturally. Alfred the Great established that in Britain as a concept and then the Magna Carta cements that into, into stone. Whereas those who are proposing that people, where there's no evidence of them doing anything, they must have done something, we know it in our bones, and yet because we don't have any evidence that we are going to then implement measures that would mean that if we were to implement those measures on anyone in the UK, we'd be sued to within an inch of our financial existence. It doesn't matter what crime anyone's committed in the UK, you couldn't sentence them to being sent out to a war zone and kept in the conditions that Shamima Begum's been kept in, nor could you even sentence them to just being kept in the condition that Shamima Begum's kept in because it's fundamentally against all human rights principles. So it's a complete reversal of the concept of justice, the arguments that are laid by those opposing this. Shamima herself, in interviews, has confessed that by going out and joining Islamic State and for being part of it for so long, she does understand why why the country has turned against her. And yet the law doesn't quite legislate for that. If you were to go and join a, a terrorist organisation, then that's a criminal offence on the Terrorism Act 2000. There are other issues there that are specific and unique to Shamima Begum and her classmates who went out, in that they were children when they went out there. And the issue of whether the criminal law applies to people in those circumstances to the degree that it would on, on adults is a question. Whether they were groomed or not, we have um, issues around that. That is a question, but they're unique to the issue of 15-year-old girls running off to Syria, having been groomed. They're simply not applicable to anyone else who chooses to join a terrorist organisation because that is a, a terrorist offence which will get you a custodial sentence. It's not just a situation of whether or not uh, punishment is meted out for someone who's done wrong. It's an issue of an examination about what exactly they did. And we deserve that as well as members of the public in the UK. We deserve to know how is it that some of our children were radicalised in a UK school and there were nine girls who were potentially um, going to go out to Syria. How is it that that happened under the noses of counterterrorism? How is it that those girls were questioned by counterterrorism yet not identified as a flight risk? How is it that those girls' families were not told about this or, or notified to the risk to their kids? How is it that when they got out there that we had no ability to work with the Turkish authorities to put a stop to their travel plans when they're a NATO ally? And how is it that we have a set of laws on our books that allow us to strip somebody who was born in the UK, who was a British citizen, citizenship nowhere else, of their citizenship, potentially leaving them stateless without judicial oversight. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You can get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free on a digital subscription. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. 
Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. What should happen to the British nationals who went to Syria to join Islamic State? There are unique issues that are thrown up by the situation in Syria. So... For example, some young women may have gone out there, spent four or five years there. The average life expectancy of their husbands, quote-unquote, is about six to nine months. That's Mohammed Akunji again, Shamima Begum's family lawyer. So some of these women have gone out there either with children from the UK but then have had subsequent children with multiple husbands of different nationalities. So they have a number of children with different nationalities, really, as well. And that that creates quite a complicated scenario in terms of repatriation. Where does that family, or what remains of the family, go? Which is the easiest route in terms of repatriation to any nation that will take them? And do the other children have any right whatsoever to be repatriated with their siblings? It poses some very, very complex issues. However, leaving them where they are potentially is a much greater security risk for every nation because you have unregistered children who would be brought up in camps where the only real education there is going to be provided by hardline ISIS supporters. There's no definite surety that those camps will continue to exist even in the medium-term future, at which point these people will, will disappear off into the ether. And in a few years' time, one only shudders to think how they'll resurface. And with Shamima's case, do you think it's possible to change public opinion on her story? Well, public opinion has changed quite radically from 2015 to 2019. In 2015, it was a tragedy that we've lost a number of schoolgirls to the siren call of ISIS and we must do everything to bring them back uh, and save them from that. In 2019, we're in a very different country where there's the baying for blood, it seems, out there. So public opinion is a fickle beast. It's not something that I'm too concerned about. It's more the fact that we're trying to establish the parameters of what citizenship really means and in what circumstances that can be taken away and whether it's appropriate in these circumstances. The law is sometimes in accord with the public opinion and sometimes it isn't. Has that been a major element in this case, just the, the sheer public backlash and the vitriol around Shamima Begum's story? I think the... The problem that I have with it is that Shamima Begum's become iconoclast. 
as an issue. There, there are other girls who'd gone out there. Others have actually returned since the issue of Shamima Begum without blockages being set up for them. So the issue there is, well, to my mind, the Shamima Begum case was actually a case and it received this much attention because of the actions of Sajid Javed. And to my mind, that was because he was using it as a political gambit in his political career. Did you think he was playing politics with the issue? I have no doubt in my mind. Knowing where they were, knowing what their activities were, the only time anyone was stripped of citizenship was when Shamima Begum's story appears in the tabloid press. If it was an issue of national security, our Home Secretary simply wouldn't have waited until it's a tabloid press issue before stripping somebody of their citizenship. For Mohammed Akunji, personally, the stakes are high. Well, I got some death threats today, so... Wow, is that normal? It's normal whenever Shamima Begum comes in the news, yeah. What thing do they say? Well, I think that's not for a podcast, but let's say a bunch of expletives, we know where you live and uh, you're dead, basically. That was today's one. But there's been a few others which have all been reported to the police. That must make it incredibly hard to do your job. Well, we do it anyway, so we're supposed to fearlessly defend our clients. That's what I fully intend to do. One of the reasons why the case is quite important to me is that it is something of a mirror to our society. It tells us more about us than it does about Shamima herself in terms of our reaction to people we perceive as our enemies. Being civilised, a measure of that is how we treat and what rights we give to our enemies, not our friends. It's easy to be nice to our friends, but to be civilised to our enemies is a mark of civilization. And I'm, I'm worried that, as a country, we've started to lose grip on that. How has it been having this story back in the news again? Oddly exhausting. Really? Yeah. That's Anthony Lloyd, foreign correspondent for The Times, who first broke the story about Shamima Begum after he found her in a Syrian detention camp. It's something, you know, I can't help but feel really frustrated about. Radicalised people, people who join terror groups, Islamic State, jihadi brides, women who want to live in the caliphate, guys who want to go and fight. So these are not new things for me. I encounter these kind of people, these kind of beliefs, these kind of thoughts, and these kind of arguments often, right back from when I started reporting on wars for the times in Bosnia, you know, 26, 27, 28 years ago now. It's not new to me. So it is frustrating to see quite how much of a tangle the authorities in this country have got themselves into over such a young female who is in such a complicated situation. That's not to ignore the gravity of her decision, even at 15, to go and live alongside Islamic State in the caliphate. It's certainly not to diminish the gravity of that decision, nor the revolting threat posed by what was a huge criminal enterprise, namely Islamic State. However, if our institutions are getting themselves in such a pickle over ostensibly a teenage girl and the decisions made by a troubled teen, then 
it really worries me about how they could cope with more complex cases, more troublesome cases, and what our counter-terrorist policy actually is. What has it told you about us as a society? We've spoken before about the legitimacy of loathing, and I think it's a very, it's a very valid phrase. You know, war is so much about emotion. It's also about people feel about it here and how it intrudes into often quite banal domestic circumstances. Their televisions become filled with figures in orange, black flags and violence. It penetrates people's consciousness here. And often, usually in fact, they don't have the other factors involved in war, sense of space and time and context that you have if you're actually in a war. So people find it much more difficult to untangle their sentiments and think things through, particularly when it comes to the enemy. Now, whether those traits are dramatically different to how they would have been in, say, 1946 and what British society then would have thought Germans, I don't know. Would it have been a whole lot different? The same emotions in in play, the same denigration of an enemy? I don't know. Possibly. We move in cycles. kids in these camps have less rights and worse conditions than adult male detainees did in Guantanamo. We're talking about 35 kids, 15 women and nine males. We're not talking about the black flag legions of Islamic State returning. Basically, the survivors of 15 families. Now, you can't tell me that our security services and our criminal justice system can't deal with that. For Anthony the consequences of not allowing these people back are far greater than the risks they pose on their return. The consequence of leaving those people and Shamima Begum out there is threefold. One, you give an absolute propaganda coup to Islamic State whose history lies in misplaced prison strategies and injustices. I'm talking about Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, Camp Bukha. That's the birthplace of Islamic State, right? Two, you produce, along with other European nations, a great pool of young kids without hope who you can't prevent them from being radicalised. They will be, you know, the next generation of Islamic State if you leave them in those camps. Number three, the camps are totally ineffective security means anywhere. I mean, there's been hundreds of escapes from those camps. Shamima Begum, she's lost three kids. A schoolgirl who made a lot of dumbass choices. She's emblematic now of the Home Office's tough on terror policy. It just, there's a huge element of sort of humbug to this. The inability of so many people, particularly in government, to actually digest the facts of the matter and come to sensible, reasonable conclusions, which will serve the security of this nation far better, really frustrates me.
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Mohammed Akunji, Shamima Begum's family lawyer, the MP, Tom Tugendhat, and my colleagues, the Times crime editor, Fiona Hamilton, and the Times foreign correspondent, Anthony Lloyd, who was, of course, where this series started. The producers today were Leona Hamid and Will Rowe. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. If you can, please do leave us a review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or on the Times Radio app, along with all the other podcasts from the Times. If you'd like to get in touch about anything you've heard, or anything you'd like to hear in the future, then please do drop us an email at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you soon. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>